This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Not a fan of being surprised by hidden fees? Well, at TD Ameritrade, they charge just one straightforward price and give you everything you need to trade. No hidden fees, no surprises. Learn more at tdameritrade.com pricing, member SIPC. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, August 23rd, and we're giving you a grab bag of SaaS stocks to watch. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Motley Fool Premium Analyst Joey Salitro in the studio with me. Joey, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you are a relatively new member of our premium team, right? Uh, in your first year at The Fool. Yes. So I have been a contractor since 2013, and I just came in-house in March. So... It's been it's been a big change for me, but it's been great. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you are someone who follows the, the tech sector in particular. Um, I know you're you're one of those SaaS folks, much like Brian Froldi, one of our frequent contributors to the podcast. So I've been waiting for the day that I could get you on because I know you have a bunch of stocks that you want to talk about. Um, and we're going to be focusing primarily on some SaaS stocks today. I believe these are all businesses that you own, right? Yes. And and so let's talk a little bit before we get into the companies, just about your investing ideology. I I think it probably lines up a little bit with how um, some of the disciples of David Gardner and the rule breaker mm-hmm. apo- approach to investing might be thinking. Yes. Yeah, so when I first started investing, I was value oriented. I loved the dividend aristocrats with the long fifty years of growth. And then it just hit me one day where I was thinking, I feel like the money has been made in a lot of these big names. And I took a step back and I realized, rather than trying to just invest in these companies for steady growth, I want to find the next Workday or the next Amazon and one of those. So I've kind of molded this thinking where I want to see a company and invest in one that I think can rise 10x over the next 10 years. So it's, it's pretty hefty expectations, what I look for. But ever since I've kind of had that transformation maybe three or four years ago, it's worked out well. And I found that mostly in tech stocks. So I kind of go where the growth is. Uh, some medical device stocks have, have kind of met my, my needs, but mostly software as a service has been where I'm going. That's been the industry for that kind of growth, I think, over the past decade. And as you may expect, listeners, when we're talking about potential for 10x growth, we're generally looking at businesses that are worth less than $10 billion. It's really yes. hard to get that multiple if you're already you know, a $50 billion or $100 billion business. So we're going to be looking at the small and mid-cap companies today. Exactly. Yeah. So what I would always see, I could definitely see a $2 billion company becoming 20 in the next 10 years. But uh, Nine hundred billion to nine trillion—that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. So hopefully you own those when they hit that point. Yeah. And then you yes. can <laughs> enjoy that growth. Um, everyone kind of has their own approach to investing, but I wanted to make sure that we covered that first. All right. Let's talk about the first stock on our watch list today, and that's Yext. And as I understand it, this is a brand management company. But I, I think we need to dive into that a little bit because that's kind of a buzzwordy way to describe this business. Yeah. So they pioneered their own industry. So they call it digital knowledge management. So what they want to do is to put the best answers in front of everybody everywhere and basically give companies control of their own data. So my primary example would be a Wendy's. So let's say they have around 6,000 locations and they decide to add a new menu item and make all their stores 24 hours. Rather than going to 6,000 different Google Map cards, 6,000 Facebook pages, 6,000 Yelp listings, or, or Yelp listings, and so forth, 
you log into the EX platform, you update it once, and it automatically publishes across 150 different applications, websites, map services. So it seems like this kind of business, the the ideal client is someone who has a massive internet reach and has probably a lot of franchises, a lot of locations, and and simply updating it in one spot rather than doing it in 6,000 makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so it would definitely be more useful for these companies like the McDonald's, the Wendy's, Home Depots, and AutoZones. But then they do have smaller pricing packages for, you know, the the single grocery store. Is there anyone that you really see in this space right now? I mean, you said you, they created the category. We always love to see that as investors because that means that they're probably ahead of the curve and that there aren't going to be other businesses uh, they're either directly competing with or maybe even for a couple of years because once you create the space, you get to enjoy it for a little while. And that's the beautiful thing about this. Since they did pioneer this industry, they list zero competition uh, in all of their filings. So... They say that the primary competition for them are the people that handle it in-house. So the people that have this IT department or people that actually, I guess, chief information officers that want to log into each of these pages and make all those adjustments themselves. This is kind of a fun way, in my view, to play on some of the mega trends in a way that you might not expect, right? You know, we, mm-hmm. we talk about the rise of mobile. We talk about the rise of um, basically all things internet, whether it's e-commerce or just access to information. Well, this is probably a business that you're interacting with a little bit, but don't even realize it when you're maintaining these things. And and if you're going to be the simple way to do that for these mega businesses, we're talking Wendy's, etc., um, that seems like a good place to be. Absolutely. And the other thing that they're really doing to transform search is something they called brand verified answers. So what they're doing there is, let's say you are celiac and you need to find gluten-free options at a restaurant. If you search gluten-free options at Panera, it might pop up a celiac blog where they list, hey, I went through these ingredients, here's the items you can have. But if Panera changed how they make those, it may no longer be something that you can have. So what Yex is doing is it's putting all the information that you already have on their platform, creating to where it's asking you specific questions that your customers want to know. So then if that is Googled, rather than going to a blog, it's going straight to Panera, bringing up their allergen menu, showing, hey, you can have this, this, and this. So that's a way to basically make sure that people are getting the exact answer they're looking for from the source that they should be getting it from. I know we, we just said that they don't have competitors. It, it reminds me a bit of HubSpot in a mm-hmm. way where um, that business is really focused on inbound marketing, right? And helping all of these um, these brands, all of these properties uh, have organic content that brings them into their funnel. Um the approach is very different. It's less specifically marketing oriented. This seems much more kind of brand presence oriented, but it is similar where you're kind of arming brands with the tools to meet people where they want information about your industry or about your business. Exactly. And I think when you think what other companies could do this, you would think a Google or a Facebook or an Instagram. But the beautiful thing is if a Facebook try to do this and they go to Google and Snapchat and say, hey, we're creating this product, they'd pretty much be like, no way. We want to do this ourselves. But having this smaller company that integrates with all the bigger players makes it much easier for them to basically fend off any competitors that want to enter the space. Yeah, it can be very helpful to be platform agnostic. Exactly. That's that's the perfect term right there. (laughs) So uh, looking at some of the numbers here, 35% revenue growth, and 110% net retention. That's a number we like to see for a SaaS business. Basically, that's their old cohorts of customers a year out. What are they spending? In this case, it's $1.10 versus $1 a year ago. Yes. So that's what I always like to look for is a company that existing customers are spending more. They're adding more customers to the platform. 
And another great thing is having these McDonald's or Wendy's, Home Depot's, as those companies add more locations, they are basically upselling themselves CX platforms. So it's almost playing into the global economy. Um, I think they are publicly traded for about the last two years. Like they haven't really yeah. been on the public markets all that long. They are definitely one of those sleeper companies. Um, I don't think a lot of people know the name, so I love having someone on to talk about these types of businesses. Um, and I think the second stock that we're going to talk about is kind of in a very similar space where people maybe see the name, don't know what they do, or have never even heard of the company, and that's Elastic. Um, you describe them to me as the Google for enterprises. Uh, they do not have the name recognition of Google. So let's talk a little bit about what Elastic actually does. So Elastic, they're basically Google for enterprises is, is the, the key term. So they do app search, site search, enterprise search. And what it is exactly does is it allows companies to search their deep dives of data and reach the answers that they're looking for. Now, a real world example of you know using this without ever knowing it would be if you hail a ride from Uber. It's actually Elastic's technology that powers those systems where it looks for the rider and the driver. And even if, hey, you want to do, uh, you're sharing this ride with someone else, it's Elastic's technology that actually shows, okay, this driver could pick up this person and this person and still get them to their locations that they're trying to go to in a reasonable amount of time. So yeah, when we when we say Google something um, as kind of just common speak, what we mean is we're putting in a query into basically this thing that has indexed the internet, and we are getting back the most relevant results. And and what it really is doing is making sense of all the information architecture that's out there on the web. It sounds to me like what this com- what this company is able to do is do something similar, but much more for operations. Yes. Yeah, so with the rise of data, it seems like every company is becoming a data company. Now, the problem is, as they collect more and more data, they've got to figure out how to sift through it and actually get actionable insights. And once they have those insights, being able to search them. And that's kind of the problem that Elastic's solving. And I love seeing companies that are basically powering other disruptors. So you see they power an Uber, they power Tinder, they power a company like Adobe. So... It's 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 funny actually. The more the more I learn about Uber and all of the inputs for Uber, you know, uh, Twilio worked with them for a while. Elastic works with them. You realize how many different parts of what we experience as Uber are actually other companies underlying <laughs> tech. <laughs> yeah, it's the disruptors partnering with the disruptors to disrupt. It's it's a beautiful thing. And and in this case, um, there's been some pretty serious growth as Elastic has come in and started doing some disrupting. Oh, absolutely. So we're looking at 60% revenue growth. That expansion rate we're talking about, it's over 130%. And they're still doing it in a great way where they're able to maintain gross margins over 70%. So they're growing quickly, and they're not just hemorrhaging cash to do so. Yeah, and, and it's worth double-clicking into that expansion rate for a second. We, we described it before as kind of a comps thing, but to think about it a different way, right? That 130% means if they added no new customers, that business is growing 30% year over year, which is incredible. You do add some new customers, and then you start to get to that 60% figure that we just mentioned a second ago. Yeah, that that's the beautiful thing about these. And when people want to look at it, so they call it net dollar expansion rate, net dollar retention rate, expansion rate simply. So if you can find those in those reports, you can really see where these customers are spending a lot more, and it could be because their usage is going up or because hey, we tried this company, they had a great product, let's try this other one of theirs too. And then you get 
where they're upselling themselves. And I think that metric is a case in point for why it's helpful to read the company transcripts or look at the earnings presentations. Because if you go out there and you look at the earnings takes from most financial outlets, you are going to see a revenue figure, you're going to see a net income figure, maybe some non-GAAP numbers in there too. Very rarely are you getting the expansion rate number that we think is so crucially important as investors. You kind of have to dig for it a little bit. It's not as widely reported on. It's more of a wonky number, but it tells you so much more about the direction that a business is going in. Yeah, everybody likes to focus on the top, the top line and the bottom line, but <laughs> I, I like to look at everything in the middle because that's where you really find the meat. As you might expect with a software business, this one's fairly high margin. I think it's about 70% gross margins. Um, and it seems like they're still kind of in the early innings of their addressable market opportunity. Yeah, they currently list an, a total addressable market of $45 billion, and they're on track for about $400 million in this fiscal year. So you see less than 1% of their overall market. The, the runway for growth is quite significant, to say the least. All right, we've got one more stock that we're going to be talking about. We're going to do that over on the back half of the show. Before we get over there, though, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI, and that's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com slash education, member SIPC. Okay, um, Joey, I, I got to say, I balked a little bit when I first saw the name on this third stock because it kind of has an antiquated tech sound to it. Uh, the company's name is PagerDuty. I think that immediately conjures up the idea of like an 80s businessman or something, you know, some, something like that, you know, attached at the hip with, uh, with this piece of technology that we now kind of laugh at. But where does the name for this business come from? And that's what really made this company click for me because, like you, I thought the name was just silly. But once I see, so what PagerDuty means is, say you're on the DevOps team and a website goes down, you would be the person that they're paging saying, hey, something's going wrong. We need you to fix this. So essentially, yeah, they're going directly to you. You're on pager duty that night. And they might have four different people, and you just kind of go down the list. Each person, as an incident comes up, that's the person that's being contacted for it. So seeing that, okay, so you pretty much have to be a developer to understand what this is saying, then it's kind of cool where they're, they're, they know who their target audience is. Yeah, yeah. And so the pager duty that a DevOps would be on, very similar to uh, maybe a doctor on call or something exactly. like that. Um, so this is a business that focuses on when things go wrong in IT. I know they describe themselves as incident response platform. Um, and, and it seems like it's something that you don't necessarily want to have to use, but know at some point you're going to need it. And if you don't, you're going to be kind of stuck. Yeah, as so this is one of the companies where as the rise of cloud and software as a service has come about, more companies have these software-enabled devices or systems. And so say you have your cloud-based accounting, you might have your payment processing company, you've got your website hosting, you're connected into all of these different softwares that if something goes wrong, you might not know where it's coming from. Like, why is our website down? Why is this not loading? You really don't know. So what PagerDuty does is it collects signals from all of your software-enabled systems, and if something's going wrong, or if your website crashes, it tells you exactly why. And, of course, with part of their upsell is, then it could alert the exact person or team 
to fix that problem. Yeah, and I think uh, when we were doing prep for the show, you said it was kind of like a central nervous system. That That's kind of the, the metaphor to use to think about this and kind of how it makes sense of all of the different signals that it's getting about a business. That's one of the things in their initial S1 uh, they gave a presentation. They're like, we are the central nervous system for tech companies. And I was like, that is just beautiful. Yeah, that's brilliant. That, that's such an easy thing um, to wrap your head around. Uh, some of the numbers for this business are, are the kinds of things that investors love to wrap their head around. Uh, 85% gross margins last quarter. Oof. That's pretty just a darn thing of beauty. impressive there, huh? On top of that, they've got accelerating revenue growth, good old ARG. <laughs> so you see, the, and, and that's another thing where they've got, I think it's just over 11,000 customers. They're adding more. The existing customers are spending significantly more. We look at the net dollar retention rate again, over 130%. So you see with the rise of e-commerce and digital experience, companies just simply can't afford to have their websites not load because they could lose that customer forever. Yeah. And, and, you know, being down for one day or even a couple hours during a critical period could mean a huge chunk of sales just not being there. Yes. And how... uh, the CEO actually described it is if you're going to buy a jersey online on, like, say, NBA's website and you get that uh, wheel of death where it's just spinning, they're like, if, if it's doing that for more than a minute and you don't fix it, you might never make that sale and that customer may never return to your shop again. Yeah, and that's that's a kind of a worst-case scenario if you own a site. Um, this business has only been public publicly traded now, I think, for about four months. Um, I generally am someone who sits on the sidelines for a little bit, you know, waits to see the lockup period come and go, uh, likes to see a couple uh, quarterly calls from management. I know that we disagree a little bit on that. You're more of someone that's willing to hop in early with some IPOs. Yeah, so again, I'm, I'm looking 10, 25 years out, and I see this company, it's currently got a market cap of $2.7 billion. I could easily see this being $27 billion one day or even bigger. So I always like to, you know, not always just dip my toe in, but I like to get a significant stake on day one. And then if it rages from there, I'll just kind of watch it run. Or if it comes back down, I'll slowly add. So I never really cap myself at a specific position or dollar amount. I kind of go based off how I feel about the company. And this uh, saving best for last would be how we call this one. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your favorite of the three. Yeah. And it's the most richly valued. So you look, it's over 20 times sales as the others were more in, uh, I think we have Elastic in the mid-teens and uh, Yext is less than 10 times sales. But yeah, this one being the most overvalued, as some would say, (laughs) but it's by far my favorite. Yeah. Given the state of the market, nine times sales, 10 times sales doesn't seem that crazy, actually. With the X, I always look back, (laughs) if that company went public today, what would it get? Because when they went public in 2017, buying IPOs, it it seems like that's the cool thing to do now. Buying it on day one, you see all these 70, 80% uh, jumps on day one. Back in 2017, we didn't see that a lot. Yeah. So... Yeah, and, and I think some of that is we finally have this wave of all these public, these uh, private companies, former unicorns in particular, going public. And so, you know, after reading headlines for ages about Uber and Lyft and uh, Pinterest, you know, Beyond Meat, you name it, uh, to be able to finally get shares, uh, people are going to, you know, jump at that opportunity. Yeah, and I, I love these smaller tech companies. Some I've never heard of before, before the S1 filings come about, and I start clicking through and it's like you see these numbers, you see the presentations, you see the uh, the net dollar retention at, uh, I think it was 139% for PagerDuty when it filed. And it's almost like you fall in love with at first sight. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about these three businesses kind of together quick before we wrap up, because 
while they're you know different companies, different stocks, they all have their puts and takes. I think that there are some very common elements here, um, both on the opportunity side and the risk side. We were talking about valuation a little bit, and yes, these are all richly valued businesses. Um, I think. What gets lost a little bit in the price to sales comparison? It's what you have to use when companies aren't profitable. But I think what gets lost in that is, you know, I think all these companies have gross margins that are over seventy percent. Yeah, you see a path to profitability for each of these companies, but the problem is you you have to maintain significant enough growth to keep investors interested while you continue down that path. So yeah, the the risk for each of these companies, especially you know, Elastic growing over sixty percent on the top line. If that slows to thirty percent, you know people won't be as optimistic or want to be paying such a, ho- a lofty price to sales valuation if they don't see, you know, well, if they're not going to be turning a profit on the bottom line soon, then we can't give it this rich of a valuation on the top line. Yeah, they are all very much in that phase of we're growing to reach more TAM. Our penetration is going up, and we're not profitable. But once we do become profitable, once we ramp down our sales uh, general administrative spend, which is generally the lion's share of expenses for these types of businesses, we're going to become extremely profitable. Uh, and so, as long as that story holds, I certainly am willing to pay premiums for these types of stocks because, you know, the the reality with software is it scales so well and the margins are so high that the price to sales metric is only so helpful for what it might look like five to ten years from now. Yeah, it's an ultimate land grab for each of these companies, <laughs> and they all three have such low penetration rates to what their total addressable market is that, yeah, you definitely want to see them keep spending to continue to grow, and you don't want to see them try to pay back, uh, pair back uh, sales and marketing or anything. You want them to, hey, spend, 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 grow, grow, grow. Yeah, because the risk, especially, um, you know, we're talking about some of these not really having firm competition, is that if they're fairly complacent, well, Someone else is going to see that opportunity and be willing to spend that cash. Eventually, all of these companies will have bigger competitors. They might be growing faster, or hey, it could be uh, an elastic competitor moves in and has a billion dollar valuation, and then I become to the point where I'm like, I could see this rising a hundred x in ten years, <laughs> and and so yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want to wait for the competition to move in. So you got to spend now and grow now. All right. Well, thanks for hopping on today's show and give us an overview of these three businesses, Joey. Maybe I'll have you back on in a little while, bring some new stocks in and check on these three. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you just want to say, hey, maybe even pitch a stock or two for us to talk about on the show, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or you can catch the videos from the podcast and some of our other video content over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Joey Salitro, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!